Good morning, everybody. Welcome and happy Father's Day to all of you dads. I don't have a specific message this morning for Father's Day, but I am going to talk about something that every father is interested in, and that is growth, development, maturity, strength. In fact, those are themes that every one of us is interested in in one way or another. I'm interested in those topics because 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is all about those particular themes. Now, just to give you kind of a bird's eye view of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul revolves the whole chapter around three metaphors, three illustrations that help us understand something about growth, maturity, development. And if we can understand the pictures, we're going to understand some things about growth and development and maturity that maybe we haven't seen before. The first metaphor, Carlos discussed last week, and that's the picture of infants growing up. We all know how human development works. Infants become toddlers, toddlers become children, children, adolescents, adolescents, adults. I'll stop there so I don't get in trouble. But you kind of know how the continuum works. Carlos then ended by looking at the word unity. And I sure hope you've been practicing unity this week. Remember, understand the gospel, notice someone, invite someone, talk to someone, yield to someone. I hope you've been practicing the unity principle because that's part of what it means to grow, to mature, and develop. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the next two metaphors, the next two pictures in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And those two pictures are God's field and God's building. So kind of right in the middle of the chapter there, verse 9, it says, we are co-workers in God's service. You, the community, the people in Corinth, the church there, you're God's field, you're God's building. Well, if you have your Bibles or your iPad or whatever you're going to read from, uh, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and follow along as I read beginning in verse 5, I'll read through verse 15, and as I read, see what you can learn about those two metaphors, those two illustrations of growth, development, maturity. Here we go. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace given to me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If what is burned up, 
The builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Well, there Paul plays with those two metaphors. We're going to look at them under the categories of agriculture and architecture. The agriculture piece is all about we are God's field. Some of you are gardeners. Some of you have tended gardens before, so you know kind of how the process works. I don't have a garden. I never had a garden. I will never have a garden. My neighbor has a garden, so I know something about gardening. And one thing I can tell you, gardening takes a lot of work. He started working on his garden months ago. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with gardening or agriculture, let me just explain a few of the steps to you. First, there's rototilling that has to happen. And so he came out with his rototiller, and he's back and forth kind of chomping up the soil, making it suitable for planting. But that wasn't all. Then he went and bought other soil and kind of mixed it in, I guess soil that was better soil. Then he had fertilizer, and he rototilled that in. After that, he built these little forms around and put a little fence around it so the rabbits and stuff don't come in and eat what he plants. And then after all of that work of rototilling and fertilizing and making little forms, he then planted seeds. Then he watered the seeds. In fact, I still see him some mornings watering the plants. After he waters, he weeds, and he's out there picking weeds. And since weeds grow faster than the vegetables and stuff grow, he has to weed and he waters, and eventually he harvests. And often I look out the window and seeing, all, seeing him doing all of that, and I think, boy, aisle one in any supermarket has everything he's growing. It's got broccoli and lettuce and tomato. Everything's right there. Well, anyway, Paul uses the picture of gardening to help us understand something about growth, development, and maturity. You know, the Bible uses agriculture often as a theme. So, for example, a few, a few of you may, may, be, uh, may, may recognize some of these. Psalm 1, be like a tree planted by streams of water. John 15, we are the branches, Jesus the vine, the purpose is fruitfulness. We are to bear the fruit of the Spirit, again, an agricultural picture. The Bible loves talking about agriculture because the people of Jesus' day would look around and see things growing. And at this time of year, we look around and see things growing as well. And the themes are still there and important for us to learn. Here are a couple of them. Growth is expected and desired. Don't you realize that? So, for example, whether it's the metaphor of children in the early part of the chapter, or whether it's agriculture in the early part, or architecture at the end, growth, building, is expected and it's desired. We desire infants to grow. We desire gardens to grow. We desire buildings to grow. We expect it. We desire it. I have two grandsons. Jeffrey's three and Carter is almost one. And I noticed that, you know, different stages of life have different requirements, different rules and regulations. Carter, who's not quite one, he can get away with stuff that Jeffrey can't get away with. So, for example, if Jeffrey interrupts and wants someone's attention when someone else is talking, he may get a timeout. And it's actually pretty funny watching Jeffrey go to timeout. He even will tell Alexa three minutes, and he knows how it works with Alexa to time him. 
Carter can interrupt by screaming and demanding what he wants, and Carter never gets a timeout. You see, there are expectations that come as we grow, and it's desirable that eventually kids will grow and not interrupt. It's eventually desirable that kids will grow and not have to be cared for. Infants doing infant stuff are cute. Adults doing infant stuff are sad, pathetic. And what Paul's saying at the beginning of the chapter, you guys need to grow up. How about when it comes to the agricultural picture? The only reason you rototill, the only reason you fertilize, the only reason you plant, the only reason you weed, the only reason you water is to harvest fruit. It's expected and desired. But not just expected and desired. Growth can be disrupted. Growth can be stunted. There are lots of things you can do in a garden that will cause problems. If you don't water enough, the plants will be stunted. If you don't weed, they may be choked out a little bit. If you don't plant, nothing will happen. Growth can be stunted. Growth can be disrupted. And that's one of the points that Paul reminds us of. As we grow to maturity individually and as a community, that growth is expected and desired, but that growth can be disrupted. That growth can be stunted. So let's make sure that we are pulling together to grow this community called Calvary Church. Just like Paul writes to the community in Corinth and says, be a community that's like God's field, you doing your part making sure that you put into play your gifts and your abilities, some plants, some water, some weed, some rototill, some harvest. And if each member of the team isn't doing that member's work, the whole growth is going to be disrupted or stunted. But that principle is also true individually in our lives, right? Are you doing the rototilling, planting, watering, weeding necessary in your own life to make sure that growth is coming? You know, one of the reminders that Paul uses this picture for is that every one of us is part of this agricultural work of God. And you may be a rototilling specialist here at Calvary Church. Maybe you're someone that loves to weed or you're really good at watering, or maybe you're a harvester. Well, if you sit on the sidelines, the whole community is going to be stunted. That growth is going to be disrupted unless we put our shoulder to the plow, even though you may not be a plowman, and we're working together toward that end. And even though now we're not able to gather, at least for a couple more weeks, there are things that you can be doing and I can be doing to grow this community. And if you sit back and do nothing, if you let your gifts kind of, you know, just sit on the shelf and you're not rototilling and you're not fertilizing and you're not weeding and you're not watering, all the growth of the whole community may be suffering, stunted, and disrupted in one way or another. And if you're not working on that agricultural work in your own life, in your own heart, your growth may be stunted, your growth may be disrupted as well. So the agricultural picture reminds us of a few things that we have to keep in mind. But before we move to architecture, I want to mention one more that we sometimes quickly forget. Growth is expected and it's desired. Growth can be disrupted and stunted. And growth is gradual. My guess is you don't plant a garden and then pick your vegetables that afternoon. 
In fact, you don't even pick them next week. It's a gradual process. And here's one of the liabilities that happens. Uh, sometimes the longer you've been a church attender, the longer you've been a Christian, we want everybody else to immediately grow to the level we've grown, but we want them to do it like in supersonic speed. It, it may have taken us decades to get where we are, but we assume other people can get there in a few short months. If there's no growth, that's a problem. Maybe it's disrupted or stunted, but growth takes time. Patience required. Maybe that's why uh, you like aisle one in the supermarket rather than taking care of a garden because growth takes patience. God's patient. Make sure growth is happening. Make sure in the community we're all pulling together to produce a growing community. Make sure we're giving other people time and space to grow and develop and make sure that we're working together toward that end. Well, Paul then shifts metaphors, beginning in verse 10, and then he begins to talk about architecture. Architecture. Now, in Corinth, as a big city, maybe there weren't a lot of farms around, and lots of people may not be able to connect with the agricultural picture, but if you looked around at the buildings in Corinth, being a relatively new city, architecture would have been familiar to everybody. And the same basic principle applies. Lots of different types of builders are required to build this structure. You need masons and carpenters. You need electricians. You need plumbers. You need lots of different labors coming together. You need an architect to draw the plans. You need engineers to design things. And then you all work together to build the superstructure. And we gaze at the buildings that are not just beautiful, but they're useful. Each of us putting our gifts into play to produce a beautiful, useful structure. See the similarities between the infant to adult metaphor, the agricultural metaphor, and now the architectural metaphor? There's a story that's been floating around for a, a long time. I'm going to retell it because it kind of makes the point. There was this carpenter, actually a master carpenter, a super skilled carpenter, and he worked for this one boss for years and years and years. Well, eventually he was getting tired he was nearing retirement age, and as he was nearing retirement, he thought to himself, you know what? I'm done. I, I need to save enough money. I'm going to build a little cottage, and I'm just going to retire and put all of that hard work behind me. So he approaches his boss that he worked for forever, and he goes up and he says, I just want you to know, I'm done. I quit. I'm tired. I want to build a little tiny cottage for myself, and I'm just going to settle down, enjoy my, my retirement years as best I can. His boss was somewhat saddened, and his boss said, oh, I've got one more project for you. Please, please, please. There's this beautiful piece of property, and this person has, uh, you know, uh, this person has financed a beautiful building to be built. You build this last project, and you are done. Well, the master carpenter agrees, and he sets out building this palatial, awesome-looking building, but his heart's not in it. He's kind of ticked off that he has to work. He uses shoddy materials. He's doing a lousy job. He's cutting corners. He's, doing, he's not insulating this. He's using, you know, the cheapest thing he can find. He's making it as quick as possible, easy as possible, as cheap as possible, so he can get out of the job. Well, eventually he builds it, and it looks kind of okay, but the structure inside is a lot more unsafe than it kind of looks on the outside. And he goes in and says to the boss, well, I'm done. I'm going to retire. I made enough money on maybe this last project. I'm going to start that little cottage. And his boss says, well, I've got one more thing for you. 
And he hands him an envelope. And he says to that master carpenter, I want you to open the envelope. And he opens it up. And inside is the deed to that last property he built. And he said, as your last work, I want you to own the last project you built. All of a sudden, all of his skimping and all of his corner cutting and all of the time he spent when he should have been working, thinking of other things, he was saddened and disgusted by. Well, the point of that is that sometimes we're building God's building. Sometimes we're building a life, but our heart's really not in it. Are you cutting corners? Are you using shoddy materials? Are you just barely getting through, marking your time, going through as quickly as you can, calling out all the time, not fulfilling what the responsibilities that God has you to do? You know, the picture that Paul gives us in the architectural illustration is that we're building a building. We are all co-laborers in this superstructure, this community called Calvary Church and the church in general, and we're all coming together to do it. How are we building it? Let's personalize that a little bit. Not just are we together, laborers, building this structure, but we're also laboring to build our lives. What kind of life are you building? Are you cutting corners, using shoddy materials? Your heart's not really in it. You're building this, but you're really over spending time doing that. You should be investing in this, but you're really not investing in this. We will spend forever with the building we're building. We get the deed. God's given us all we need to build. But sometimes when our heart's not in it, the building that we're building, that we're not too proud of. Paul seems to ask two questions in this uh, illustration. And since he asked them, I'm going to ask you. First one, um, what are you building with? What are you building with? What materials are you using? Paul actually mentions six in here, right? Gold, silver, precious stones. Wood, hay, straw. Six different materials. Why does he mention them? Well, he mentions them because he mentions the day is coming, fire's on the way. Now, fire in the Bible usually refers to a judgment, usually refers to a God's assessment, kind of the final exam. And you don't have to be a genius to figure out. If you uh, put gold, silver, or precious stones, if they fall into your fire pit, well, you put the fire pit out or you wait till the fire's over and you go in and you pick out the gold, silver, precious stones, they're going to be okay. But if you build with wood, hay, stubble, st uh, straw, and they fall into the fire pit, there's not going to be anything left for you to dig out. They will be consumed. What are you building with? Are you building with materials that'll last? Are you building with gold, silver, precious stones? Or are you building with wood, hay, straw? When it comes to your life, what are you building with? What materials? Let me uh, kind of mix the metaphors to help you understand a little bit. Uh, what could we equate gold, silver, precious stones with? How about this? Love, joy, peace. Now, I know that they're often mentioned as fruit, but you could also say they are the precious things that God wants us to build our lives in. 
with. And so if you go to the fruit of the Spirit, you'll, you'll find love, joy, peace. If you go to the Beatitudes, you'll find lots of qualities that we need to build into our lives. They would be the precious things. They will be, they will be the things that will withstand the test, withstand the fire, withstand the judgment. Love, joy, peace. They will let, How's love, joy, and peace? You're building those things into your life? How's that going? Wood, hay, straw. What would wood, hay, straw? Well, let's just kind of take the opposite. How about this? Ego, envy, worry. Are you building with uh, love, joy, peace? Or are you building with ego, envy, worry? If you're building with ego, envy, worry, you notice ego kind of opposite love, envy kind of opposite joy, and worry kind of opposite peace. Are you building with ego, envy, worry? Or are you building with love, joy, peace? I don't have to tell you. Ego, envy, worry, they won't pass the test. They not only don't feel good now, they'll be incinerated forever. Are you building with your own interest only in mind? Are you building, looking around at what other, people's have and, uh, other people have and you're ticked off at God because you don't have them? Are you climbing onto the treadmill trying to achieve, 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 accumulate, accumulate, accumulate? Notice the ego envy worry scheme is exactly the script that the Corinthians were following. That's why the love, joy, peace scenario that Paul presents is radically countercultural because they were on the ego envy worry cycle. Are you building with uh, love, joy, peace? Are you building with the unity principle? Or are you building with ego envy worry? It makes all the difference. By now, you're uh, probably asking. If not, I'm going to ask for you. Well, how does this division of labor work? You ever notice that in most families, in most marriages, the division of labor is a pretty important discussion. Who puts out the trash? Who cooks the dinner? Who washes the cars? Um, who takes care of the garden? Who does the shopping? Who shines the shoes? Who, right? The division of labor is really, really important. Well, have you noticed as we read through these metaphors that the division of labor seems a little skewed? Like Paul keeps saying, well, it's God's stuff, God's stuff, God's stuff, but you need to build. Well, wait a minute. If God's building the building, why am I involved in building the building? And if, if it's God's garden and God causes the growth, what in the world am I doing? Rototilling, watering, planting, and harvesting. If it, is it God's job or is it my job? Well, that's pretty important. You know, there are some... Uh, Christians uh, through the ages, and a lot of them running around today, they believe their responsibility is to kind of sit back, do nothing, and let go and let God. I remember speaking to, uh, to a woman once, so oh, a couple years ago. I remember saying to her, now, how do you seek to build kind of love, joy, peace, patience? How do you build those fruit of the Spirit into your life? Do you practice spiritual disciplines? What do you do? And I'll never forget her answer. She said, I just pray in the morning, and I claim it. I said, you I claim love. I claim joy. After I heard her go through all nine of the fruit, I said, well, how's that working? She said, not real well, but I claim love. And I claim, is that what we do? Is it really let go and let God? We just kind of do nothing. We just kind of stand there and God's going to somehow zap us and we're going to grow. Or maybe you follow the exact opposite. There are other Christians that don't follow the let go and let God scheme. They follow the scheme where everything depends on them. 
So uh, they have to keep their foot on the gas and they're all about spiritual disciplines and they're all about details and they're all about do this and don't do that. And they spend their lives worrying and hurrying to do this and do that because after all, growth is up to them. They're rototilling, they're watering, they're building the building, they're laying the bricks, they're putting the plumbing in, they're putting the electric in. Well, what's God's part and what's our part? Paul seems to say pretty clearly in, these, in this chapter, it's God that causes the growth. Parents, you can't make your infant grow from infant to adult. Gardeners, you can't make your garden grow. You can plant and water, but if God doesn't make it grow, it's not growing. And all of you builders, engineers, architects, and you know, contract workers, you can show up, but it's God who somehow is building the building. How does the division of labor come together? Well, let me mention two things that, uh, that are helpful to me. You ever tell, uh, tell your kid who isn't interested in going to bed that they need to go to bed and go to sleep? Well, suppose uh, they try and they, can't, they come back and they say, Dad, Mom, I just can't sleep. You know, the truth of the matter is, we can't make ourselves sleep. Yeah, you could listen to another sermon, but maybe that'll help. But you can't make yourself sleep. But you know what? You can put yourself in a position where sleep is more likely to come. So, for example, you don't put the TV on as loud as you can with as, uh, you know, loud and bright lights and shine. You, you don't put yourself in a position where it's loud and it's bright. You put yourself in a room and you turn out the light and you put your head on a pillow and you're in a dark room, and you're quiet, and you don't have, and you put yourself in a position where sleep can come. I'm not much of a sailor, but I do know this. If you're on a sailboat, you can't make the wind blow to push you over here or pull you over there. You can't do it. But you can do some things to cooperate when the wind shows up. You can put the sail up. You can put the rudder in the water. You can put the centerboard down into the water so that you're able, and when the wind blows, you cooperate with the wind so the wind can then move you. Maybe the point when it comes to the division of labor is only God can make the wind blow. Only God can bring sleep. Only God can cause the growth. But we can put ourselves in a position where sleep happens, where the wind blows and we catch it where we grow because we've cooperated with what God requires in order for growth to happen. Well, we've answered the first question. What are you building with? What materials? Interestingly, that's not Paul's basic question when it comes to architecture. The ultimate question for Paul is not what you're building with. The basic question is, what are you building on? His basic concern is the foundation question. It's not the materials question, it's the foundation question. In fact, in his description, here's what he says. If you build with lousy materials, wood, hay, straw, but you're building on the right foundation, so you're building with lousy materials, but you're building on the right foundation, yeah, the fire will come and it'll consume your work, but you will remain. But if you're building with precious stones, gold and silver, and you're on a wrong foundation, you do not remain. The ultimate concern, the ultimate question is the foundation question. What are you building on? That's another 
familiar theme in the Bible. Are you building your life on the rock of the gospel? Or are you building your life on the sand, which is anything else? When the storms of life come, when the fire comes, those houses, regardless of what you built with, will be blown away if they're not on the foundation, which is the rock, the gospel. So Paul reminds us here, Jesus needs to be the foundation. And if we build on him and we build with the right materials, we will build a community called the church that the world will look at and be attracted to and will stand forever and ever. And individually, we need to be building our lives on Jesus, on the rock, on the gospel, which then takes us right back to Paul's little rabbit trail that he began in the middle of chapter 1 and went all the way through chapter 2. Paul is again saying, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus Christ, the gospel, the cross, that's the center, that's the foundation, that's what we need to be building on. So I want to end this morning by looking at three things that the cross provides, and I'm going to ask you to do the hard work of applying these three things. Here's the first one. The cross purchases pardon. The cross purchases pardon. You know, as you read through uh, the New Testament, you discover that most people, in fact, all people except Jesus, they're really screwed up. Let me just mention two of the real heavy hitters. Uh, Peter, Peter is a major mess up. The biggest mess up of his life, he denies that he even knows Jesus when he's asked by a fire by a little slave girl. He denies that he knows Jesus. He lies. Eventually he's caught and his heart is broken. He confesses his sin. But Peter knows that he needs pardon. How about Paul, who wrote this letter? Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Now, uh, I think some of us, me included, would give him a run for his money. <laughs> but Paul can call himself the chief of sinners because he's pretty well acquainted with his own guilt. After all, he would round up Christians, bring them back for trial, have them imprisoned and executed as heretics. Paul, chief of sinners. Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. But at the cross, they find pardon because at the cross, Jesus took all of their guilt, paid the price for it, and then offers pardon to them. Do you have a bead on your guilt? I know most of the time we try to deny it. We drown it out with music and TV and other things. We don't like to think too much about it. But in the soberness of this moment or in the quietness of this day or this week, are you ever in touch with your guilt? Will you really understand how bad you are? And regardless of how bad you think you are, the truth is we're much worse than we ever think. Are you in touch with that? If you're honest and realistic about your guilt, you understand how wonderful the cross is because it's at the cross that Jesus purchases pardon and he offers us that forgiveness. He offers us pardon. Can you imagine knowing you're guilty, 
walking into a court and having the judge pardon you because someone else paid your fine, someone else paid for your, for your forgiveness, and you are pardoned, the relief of that. That's what Paul feels every time he thinks about the cross. That's why in the middle of chapter 1, when he mentions the cross, his mind immediately shifts gears and he runs down the whole rabbit trail of chapter 2 just thinking about the wonder of the cross, the beauty of the cross, the amazing nature of grace. The cross purchases pardon. That's the foundation. But the cross also gives us life. Isn't it fascinating that the cross, being an instrument of death, is transferred by God to be the place of life. I read some uh, interesting statistics that kind of sobered me up a little bit, so I'm going to share them with you. Two people die in the world. Two people die every Second, 105 people die every minute. 56 million people die every year. And one second, one minute, one year, our names will be one of those. And the Bible tells us that death comes as a consequence of our sin. But there was one death, the death of Jesus. That one death is radically different than all the others. Think of it this way. Through Jesus' weakness, we can be strong. Through Jesus' brokenness, we can be healed. Through Jesus paying the price, we can be forgiven. And through Jesus' death, we get life. Not just life that lasts forever, but abundant life that begins even now. When you read about abundant life in John 10, it's not just a quality, it's a quality and a quantity of life. We get the quantity of eternal life and the quality of abundant life together, all because of what Jesus did. Well, the cross then brings us to one more thing. And that is just like uh, the language that we use when you come to a crosswalk, when you come to a cross street. The cross brings us to a, to a point of decision. Every time you reach an intersection, every time you come to a crossroad, you have a decision to make. Are you going to go through the intersection? You're going to make a left, you're going to make a right. Every time you reach a crosswalk, every time you come to a cross, you have to make a decision. The Bible's crystal clear on this one. Every human being needs to reach the point of decision where they trust Jesus and his death for their life and trust Jesus' pardon for their forgiveness. They look to the cross as the only place they'll find forgiveness. They look at the cross where the only place they're going to find life. That happens once ultimately in each of our lives. And if you've never come to that place yet, maybe this morning is that crossroads for you. When you're walking down and maybe in some new way on this Father's Day, you think about your guilt as maybe never before. You think about death and what's looming before you. You think about fire and the architecture thing. You think about harvest and the agricultural metaphor. You think, what's the future going to hold? Well, today's the day you can look to the cross, look to Jesus and find your pardon. Look to Jesus and find life. You can do that by just asking Jesus to forgive your sin. Put your faith and trust in him and then follow him.
But you know, there's another sense in which we each need to make that crossroad decision every day. Because we continue to build our lives, we continue to build this community, and every day we decide which foundation we're going to build on today. Are we going to build on the foundation of Jesus and the gospel? Are we going to build for our own accumulation, our own achievement? Are we going to build with materials of gold, silver, precious stones, or with shoddy materials of wood, hay, straw? We make those decisions every day. Every day, maybe every hour, we all come to a crossroad. Listen to the metaphors. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's time that infants grow up and become mature. It's time that we do what's necessary to cooperate with the gardener that's bringing growth in our lives so that a harvest can be produced to his honor and glory. And it's time that we put our shoulders to the task and things that God's called us to as we build on the foundation of the gospel with precious materials, love, joy, peace, not ego envy, worry. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these metaphors. These metaphors that Paul thought of a long time ago, but still ring true today. And even though all the details may not be particularly um, germane in our minds, Lord, the main themes are crystal clear. So, Father, we ask that you'd help us to grow up, to build lives that are based on, founded in the gospel, and that we build with love, joy, peace, both now to your honor and forever for Christ's glory. We pray in his name. Amen.